Hey, welcome to the Carl Landry Record Club, a music podcast from the rights, Ricky Sanchez. I am Spike Eskin. Mootlu is here. Mootlu, how are you, friend? Good, man. How are you? More shows for you, right? I'm, I'm so curious. So we've been talking for months and months and months about you getting out on the road. And of course, you did your first show, which we talked about last week at Daryl's house. But then you did like a... Like a not that the Dallas House show wasn't a real show, but like a bigger show with Angus. You do you only do one? Was it just one show? Yeah, just one. I have a bunch of dates with him in September. Okay, so this was kind of a nice warm up. But yeah, a couple nights ago, uh, by the time this comes out, it'll have been a week and a half. But we played this venue called the Freeman Arts Pavilion in Selbyville, Delaware. It's kind of right near some of the uh, Delaware and Maryland shore spots, like a little bit inland. Uh, But really cool place. It's always just so much fun to open for Amos. It was like a picture-perfect night. Amos sounded great. The crowd was awesome. You know, one thing I took away, like, from both the Daryl show and this one is just how excited and happy people are to go to shows again. Yeah, <laughs> You bet. just, like, felt that energy. And uh, these, like, couple dates were, like, a nice warm-up for the fall. Yeah. Uh, you know, because it's shaping up to be a pretty busy schedule, first with Amos in September, and then my own shows, October, November. So... Was it, like, an amphitheater? I've never heard of that venue before. No, it's not like a shed. It's like a, it's kind of like a big open space. Okay. And they were still kind of limiting capacity. Like I think normally they would just fill it out and do rows. Right. But they kind of had people set up in like pods kind of separate from each other. Okay. So there'd be like clusters of people. So they were still kind of trying to keep a little bit of distancing, even though it's outdoors. But I think they said they're now just going to go back to doing full, you know, full, full capacity. But for now, I mean, it's interesting seeing how different venues are coming back like most places aren't just full throttle full capacity i've seen a lot of places are kind of at first 50 then 75 percent spacing people out a little bit i think i think more than anything else it just sort of gives people a comfort level you know and honestly on some level it probably the venue doesn't know how many they're going to sell so maybe if they go into it saying hey let's do 50 percent capacity or 75 percent capacity maybe they feel better about it right but for, i think for a lot of people just having regardless of what scientific basis it has or doesn't have i think it's been so long since people have been in crowds and close to one another having that a little bit of space the first time would be a i think is a positive for a lot of people you know yeah, I think so. And I think you're right. Maybe it's good to not set the bar too high of what you're going to say, because there are probably still some people. Yeah. Uh, I even got this from a few folks like the Daryl's House show that, uh, you know, said they'll maybe come next time, you know, right. that people who would normally come to that date are still a little reticent. You know, some people are a little slower to the take. And I even talking to the 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 general manager of the club said, yeah, some people are still... They're still getting comfortable with the idea of doing it, but I think I think we're getting there, you know. And yeah. I it just and also, man, there's just something about playing music with your friends. Like Amos and I have toured together for so many years, but something about doing a show with him was like, okay, we're back now. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, it's getting back to some kind of normalcy. It just felt good. It was just like the picture perfect wet weather too. I saw in, yeah, outdoor I saw, shows important, you know. I saw a picture on I think it was on your Instagram of you two on the stage and I felt the yeah. same way actually seeing it. <laughs> I, I it was it was like, oh, Amos and Mood are back. Like it, yeah. it, it seeing you two on the stage made me feel good about it. And as far as comfort going to shows, it's like, you know me, I'm I'm sort of uh, let me let me go. Like I, I want to go. I'm just waiting for the right show. But but that said, and there were some other obstacles to me going to this show schedule wise with my move and stuff. But like I'm a huge Limp Biscuit guy, like enormous, like I, <laughs> unapologetic. Are we going to do a Limp Biscuit record at some point? I, I would love to. I would actually love to do the one that is is not held very high with many fans. Results may vary. It was the one non-West Borland album. Uh, it was when he didn't play guitar. It's a little bit different record. I think is really good. But they do. I would say every few years now they'll do like a club tour. And they're, a great, they're just a great live band, and I would love to see them in a club. And they're playing Irving Plaza in New York on the 13th oh, really? of August. That's yeah. like a small place for them, isn't it? They yeah, would- and the, uh, tickets are not cheap. I'll put it <laughs> out there. So I bought a pair of tickets. And again, there's a there, there's already a 
a couple of hurdles with my, like I'm gonna be in Long Island that morning for a WFAN event that starts at 5 a.m. So, and I, I, I will have moved the day before. So truthfully, the odds of me actually going to this show and not just reselling the tickets the day before are very slim. But I was thinking about being, Irving Plaza's like not a big venue and it'll be indoors and everybody will be all over each other. And mm-hmm. even me, who's mostly fine with all this stuff personally, was like, eh, I don't yeah. know, you know, like a sweaty, yeah. you know, packed in show is like, eh, maybe not. Maybe I'll take a flyer on that one, you know? Yeah, I think that those are the kind of shows that might be, you know, that some folks might be reluctant to. I, I think if you do like an indoor thing and it's more like a listening room thing and you have people sure. s- split up. It's a little different than the energy of people on their feet shouting, amped up, right on top of each other, right. like in Irving Plaza. You know, that's right. a great room. I've played there a few times. That's an yeah. awesome place for a show, for like a club show, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I'm with you on that. I'm not sure. <laughs> I think I would feel the same way, probably. Yeah, it's just like, eh, maybe next time. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I actually think those shows will do well because I think in general, the people that Olympus gets a different story because it probably appeals to, it definitely appeals to a, uh, an older audience than a lot of like club hard rock and metal shows. But I think that audience is probably more likely, not the Olympus get audience, but the metal audience to kind of say fuck it and just go for it. So they <laughs> they might do fine. But did, did you feel the same? So this year being your second time on stage, and I know you said you had some abnormal butterflies your first show did you feel the same way on this one i felt more relaxed on this one okay again because i've worked with amos so much there's like a certain rhythm and a vibe and and it was just an acoustic show as a matter the last set of shows i did with him was about two years ago we did like a week of shows in europe and they were also acoustic shows okay and and it was kind of like we just picked up where we left off from that so it was chill you know not a, a big open outdoor backstage, basically, and there's like a little area. So there's plenty of space. It was comfortable. Something about being outdoors, I felt more relaxed, actually. I didn't feel yeah. quite the butterflies of the Daryl South show, maybe because I'd already had that show under my belt. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so I, I think I think I'll probably keep feeling it at moments, you know, because now I do these couple dates, and then I'll have a little time off before the fall hits, and it gets crazy busy. But... Uh, Something about being on stage outdoors was just felt really good. I don't know. Something about playing outdoors is just really fun. The, and opening for, I mean, an Amos crowd's not like Slayer or anything, right? I mean, no. they're not. They're not like fuck the opener or whatever. No, right? no, they're, not yeah. at all. No, they're very, they're music lovers and yeah, and they listen. You know, they really yeah. engage with what you're doing. And I, I think there was a good number of people that had seen the two of us play before. Uh, you know, probably multiple times because you probably have p- people from Philly and Jersey, and yeah. at this point, his crowd, a lot of his crowd, knows who I am and have seen me at some point in time. And really, maybe the highlight of the night was singing "Arms of a Woman" with him, which you, you mentioned the pictures from when we did that to close his set because that's such a great song, oh, it's and an it awesome is song. such a fun song to sing. That song is so good that it seems like it has to have existed for longer than it has. I, I don't know what it is about that song, but it sounds like a, a standard or something. Like, yeah. like it, it's a song that, and, and it's not, it doesn't remind me of any one specific artist. It's not like, oh, it sounds like the Beatles, or oh, it sounds like Dylan, or oh, it sounds like you know Willie Nelson or anything like that. But there's something about it that is so, and maybe it's because I've been listening to it for, you know, I don't know, 15 years at this point, but there's something about that song that to me exists in a, in a forever spot. And it's not even my favorite song of his, but it is a, a song that just seems like it should last forever and seems like it existed before he even wrote it. feels like a, a standard. Again, you can't pinpoint exactly what, but it feels classic. 
Yes. And it feels like that. The, it, it felt like that the first time I heard him play it, which yeah. was years ago. Yeah. But singing it on stage, and by then the lights were up and it was dark. There was something magical about that. And we were kind of cutting loose a little bit. We were trading off on certain lines. We were putting some more solisms into it, you know. So it's a song that you can kind of reinvent a little bit, too. Yeah. Uh, you can change the tempo. You can... It's, there's a big melody there, so you, you have a lot of room to kind of vocally weave around. And, uh, yeah, it just... It, it, that was a really magical moment to to be up and singing that tune with him. And it just... Again, I felt... You just felt people were so happy to be there. And yeah. Just like we were, you know? Yeah. You f- it's like... We all have this like newfound gratitude because it's been taken away from us, you know? Well, you want to, I mean, it, you can say this about anything, but I wish there was a way that you could bottle up what that feels like. So, you know, six months into this tour, when you're having fun but grinding a little bit, right. <laughs> you could take like a little sip of these yep. last two shows just to give you some, you know, perspective, which I'm sure we'll all lose because we all lose it on everything, you know, like... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, That's just but, human nature, I guess, yeah, right? I mean, we, yeah. we, what is it about human nature that we value something at first, and then once we get into the grind of it, we, I like what you said, like, take a sip of that. Uh, yeah. I'm going to keep that in mind when it's a long drive or it's a, you know, that inevitable rough show that happens here and there. You, take take you, a sip of that feeling, you know? Yeah, you know when I, I realized that at first it's actually a music thing? After, so I worked, started working at WISP in Philly in rock radio when I was 19 and then kept working in it until 2011, right? About 2011, yeah. Well, 2011, I worked in Chicago, worked in Philly, but worked in rock radio all that time. So um, I don't know, how many years is that? It's a lot of years, it's like, uh, I don't know, however many years. A decade and a half or so. Yeah, decade and a half, decade and a half. And After that, I cleansed myself of all the music that I had been listening to over and over and over again. And you're talking about some of the greatest music of all time, you know, from from the 80s and 90s, at least for me, that meant a lot to me. And I remember returning to Nevermind and Appetite for Destruction (laughs) after years and just being like, holy fuck. And just being able to listen to it and channel at least for a moment what it was like when you started listening to it after not listening, after just pushing it away for a while. And it even did it to me for bands that I don't particularly like love, like ACDC, Led Zeppelin. I don't really, I don't dislike them. They're just sort of there to me. But when I would listen to them, but then I got sick of them. But then when I listened to them after having been away from rock radio for several years, I was like, oh man, these things are really awesome. Even, I think I mentioned on a previous pod when we did the Tool one, Tool wasn't on any of the streaming services. So after I had completely moved to streaming, you know, stopped listening to CDs and all that kind of stuff, I hadn't really listened to Tool very much in years because it wasn't right at my fingertips. And then it was when it was on those streaming services, I had a moment where it, it brought me back to those things. So I've had those moments. It's just I wish you could channel them a little bit better. And that's what I'll say about live performing. It doesn't happen necessarily, especially if you're on a long tour, maybe it doesn't happen in that way every night. Mm-hmm. But you get more of those moments on a consistent basis, maybe than you do in any other aspect of music or entertainment, where yeah. on those certain nights, certain magical moments happen, and you can't really script them. They just, they happen. And those are the moments that remind you, like, ah, this is why I love to do this, despite all the nonsense of the industry and the grind of this, that, that those are the moments that that connect you to it. But you're right, it's it's it's... It's tougher to remember those moments at times when you are feeling tired or burnt out, or you had like just had to do ten hour drive and do a show, and you're right. you're just fried, and you know. So it's it's kind of a mindset to 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 stay connected to that, that dialed into that. I think I'll have an easier time now after all this time off. I think yeah. I'll appreciate even the the grind of it in some weird way, you know. So, uh, well, congratulations. Looking forward to uh, more shows. It seems like two out of two successful. You're two for two so far, batting a thousand, as I like to say. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good shit, man. Good shit. So this pod is a music appreciation podcast. And I didn't mention our intro music from Marion Hill. So what's up, Marion Hill? You can't get that song anywhere but here. 
I feel like at some point we should just put it on the pod, the whole thing. It's a great sh- track. Uh, what was I? I'm, I'm trying to remember what sample. Jeremy said about. Oh, it was because of the sample. Yeah, there's a sample that they okay. can't put on the streaming services yet. So, so what we do on every pod is we talk about two albums. One that Moo or I will pick that we love. That's like a longtime favorite of ours, and one from a listener. We are doing that on today's podcast. If you'd like to suggest an album, Apple Podcast. So, go do it in the reviews. Go and leave us five stars, which people have been consistently doing. So we have a great list of albums. Leave us five stars. And in the review, leave us what you would like for us to talk about. And then grip it, rip it. Move on, buddy. Uh, Today's podcast, two albums. It's it's a a me week, so I got to pick an album. And that is the Gaslight Anthem's 59 Sound, a classic. And then the listener choice is also a classic. Mm. Tom Petty's Damn the Torpedoes, which came from Apple user... I like this pod. And the I like review that, I like that Apple user. Yeah, I love them. <laughs> the, the 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 review is just two albums, The Menzingers, which we might be able to do on someone, and then Tom Petty's Damn the Torpedoes. I feel like we should start with Petty. You want to start with Petty? Yeah. Yeah, let's Why start with Petty. That? And there's a weird connection between these two. When you sent it, I thought, oh, this is a nice combo, but they in one of the Gaslight Anthem songs, they mentioned Petty. Oh, I don't even... Yeah, there's a line in there. It's, it's kind of subtle, but okay. he, he references... Wait, well, we'll get to it. We'll You'll get have to, to bring it. it up, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was kind of a nice synergistic thing. But Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Now, I think with Petty, just like we've had some other iconic artists, Springsteen and Prince, it's a little challenging sometimes to find the right vantage point to get in. So I think the best way to do it is to narrow it down, because mm-hmm. we could do multiple episodes about an artist like Petty. Yeah. But... I actually think this record is in a similar place in his career arc as Dirty Mind was with Prince. Both cases, it was their third record. And just like with Prince's Dirty Mind, this was the record that really established Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers as superstars. You know, this was, they'd had some success, but this was like, okay, this guy is, this set him on the track to being a rock icon. And before we go into it a little bit, I'll do a little background and do the deep dive into the record. But just Petty as a whole, to me, one of the greatest rock and roll singer songwriters we've had, great pop songwriter. Just there's something about his songs that, there's this directness and immediacy, and he never complicates it, but there's substance there. It's not like, it's not simplistic. Mm-hmm. And I just think he's one of the greatest hook songwriters. And as a singer, he's very dynamic. He can have these very quiet moments, but then you think of something like Free Falling, and he's belting out. And I just always love that he committed to the aesthetic of a band. You know, you think of him as a solo artist, but it's really Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and right. Mike Campbell and Ben Montench. And I've seen them a couple times. Uh, I saw them a couple times. Uh, once at the Wells Fargo Center with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and then I saw Mud Crutch at the Fillmore. And both shows were two of my favorite rock shows of all time, especially at the Wells Fargo Center, hit after hit after hit. And when you'd watch them, you could just see these guys have played music together for years. There's just that joy that was like coming off the stage, well, especially with Petty and Mike Campbell back and forth, you know? I always thought Tom Petty captured a an authenticity and a coolness without throughout his entire career that never seemed to be compromised. Like even to the point that he, he died, there are a lot of artists that have their ups and downs and have their, but he just always seemed to stay in that same pocket of just sort of being a no bullshit rock and roll guy with just enough like social commentary or whatever, never really, like it, it all just felt completely honest in who he was the entire time. Yeah, and that's hard to do over a career of almost... 50 years. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, some yeah. 50, because he was really... They were doing the thing in the early 70s, even before he really broke through. Yeah. So, yeah, just an incredible artist. And like so many music fans, I was really saddened when he passed away, because I think he still had a lot of music left in him. I mean, he was only 66. He was still out touring, writing, making records. So, But he left behind an incredible legacy. I think Tom Petty's one of those artists that I, I, I'm not sure I've met anyone who dislikes him. So uh, 
I we'll, we'll get to it when we talk about the record. I've never like really been a fan. I've never been a disliker and I've never been a fan. And I do remember, I think Amos asking if I wanted to go to a show at some point, And I was just like, nah. And I really? sort of, oh, yeah, passed no. and I didn't go. But <laughs> I, 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 this, I think this was one artist that working in rock radio probably ruined a little bit for me because I had uh-huh. never done a deep dive and I, I don't want to talk about it too much now, but I, I realized listening to this record that the thing that made me not appreciate him was that I just never loved his voice. I just never loved it. It, it was never sort of, it never drew me in. And when we talk about the Gaslight Anthem, I think it's sort of like the opposite for them and it draws me in. But when I was listening to this album, I sort of took that out for a second and listened to everything else, and I realized what I had been missing when that happened. His voice is not bad. I don't think it's annoying like Getty Lee or something, but it just it's definitely distinct, and it just never connected with me, and I think it, it cast a shadow over the, the music where I never really allowed it in in a way that I should have. And I wonder if sometimes because he's such a staple of rock radio, maybe because you absorbed it in that context, mm-hmm. and maybe sometimes, you know, your vantage point of how you experience something, if it's kind of in that context of like a work situation, yeah, you, you know, rather than just like a casual music fan. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, See now I'm like obsessed. Well, where did what is that tune that I saw of his? Uh, even cowgirls. Trying to think of the song where he uh, there in the oh that's the wrong wrong lyrics. Okay, I'll look at that. Now I was trying to think of the tune that Gaslight Anthem mentioned, but we'll get to that in a, okay. in a hot second. So, um, just to start off here, do a little background. Tom Petty, born and raised in Northern uh, Florida, started playing music in high school, dropped out at 17 to form Mud Crutch which featured Mike Campbell and Ben Montench. And of course, these guys became lifelong musical collaborators. In a short matter of time, they moved to LA and they actually signed to Shelter Records, which was a label founded by Leon Russell, legendary songwriter, artist, producer, and Denny Cordell. And they got offered a deal by Shelter, but before they could really get it going, the the sort of mud crutch, that form of it sort of fell apart. So Shelter then wanted to actually sign Tom Petty or release a record for him on his own, but he kind of resisted that. I guess maybe he was more connected to the band aesthetic, and he kind of drifted through some different bands for a number of years. But then eventually in 75, he reconnected with Mike Campbell and Bent Montench. At the time, they were working with the drummer Stan Lynch and bassist Ron Blair, and Petty joined this group, and that became the Heartbreakers. So at this moment, Petty was still under contract to Shelter, so it was an obvious thing for them to do their self-titled debut uh, with Shelter Records. Initially, when that first record came out, didn't have much commercial success in the U.S., but really kind of an initial breakthrough for them was they went toward as a support act for Nils Lofgren in the U.K., hmm. and they really caught on there. They actually got to the point where they could start headlining their own club tours, and they even broke in the top 30 in the U.K., so off that momentum, Shelter kind of did another push for that record here in the States, and that's when Breakdown hit the top 40. American Girl just kind of became a staple of album-oriented rock. You know, that's a. I always think of Fast Times at uh, Ridgemont High when I think of that song for some, yeah. <laughs> some reason. What <laughs> I don't a great like that tune. movie. Yeah, it's a great movie, of course. But, yeah. uh, and what a great all-time song. That that is a a cover staple of Andrew McMahon. Mannequin actually does it almost ah. every show and is a is a just one of the ones, even though I mentioned I was never big on Petty, one of the ones that I just I never turned down when I was in the studio when I would play it. Just a it deserves to be a staple, you know. It's a great tune. Yeah, it's yeah. a great tune. So he had those first couple tunes that sort of put him on the map, but he was still building at that point. Then the follow-up came, you're gonna get it. That album also reached the top 40, and maybe that could have been the bigger breakthrough, but right at that moment, as we've heard this story so many times, I feel like all the, so many great artists 
it came up in that area. There's some kind of label complication. Right, of course. And, <laughs> and that's what happened to him after that second record and during that second record. Basically, what happened was Shelter's parent company, ABC, was bought out by MCA. And Petty wanted to renegotiate the whole deal that he had. And MCA basically said, no, we're not doing that. It got became very tumultuous and drawn out. It ended up with him having to file for bankruptcy. And finally, when the smoke cleared, they resolved everything. And he ended up signing with the... Uh, Backstreet imprint of of MCA, and that was the label that, or the subsidiary, I should say, that released uh, "Damn the Torpedoes," which was really the breakthrough produced by Jimmy Iovine. You know, a lot of people know Jimmy Iovine as you know the mogul behind Interscope. In the early years, he worked a lot as a producer and engineer. Hmm. Was really on the creative side of things, and it's interesting. I think, in some ways, reading about this record, he was the one that really helped push them. To realize their full potential in the studio, you know, I read something where Mike Campbell was talking about how challenging those sessions were at times because he would force them to rework these songs over and over and over again just to get it just right, you know. And but in the end, it paid off because you have three songs really that are cornerstones of rock radio here. And I'll just go through a few highlights, and I'm kind of curious to get your takes on this one. But here comes my girl. Great lead off to, to the record. Uh, you know, actually, I'm sorry. That's not the first tune. Yeah, Refugees first, which Refugee. is another staple. Yeah. Another staple. First off, that's an incredible one two punch. Refugee to me is like the perfectly constructed rock like anthem. You know, you have you have this almost conversational verse, which is something he did a lot, especially early on. Then you have the kind of belted out pre-chorus, and then you have this great call and response hook. And then the bridge like slots in right at the perfect part of the song. It's a you know, from a pop song construction, that's a great tune. And then boom, you follow up with Here Comes My Girl, another great build-up arrangement. Now in that one, he's almost has this like spoken verse kind of thing going on yeah and then he has a kind of rhythmic pre-chorus and then quintessential big melody sort of petty chorus i think with him it's interesting and when i listen to this record he he has a nice combination of sort of the swagger in the verses but then he comes with these big hooks it's, it's like a little bit of almost like a punk rock attitude at times that mm -hmm. kind of edge and at other moments it reminds me of some of the great records that the stones did this album kind of reminds me of some of the Stones records. It made me think of Some Girls in particular, where you would have a few standout tunes that would undeniably be the singles. Like, in this case, Refugee, Here Comes My Girl, and Don't Do Me Like That. Like, you know those are the radio songs. But then you have the other tracks on the album that are just a band that's really dialed in, just a really good rock and roll band. It made me think of Some Girls. Some Girls you, uh, from the Stones, you have Miss You and Beast of Bird, and then just otherwise this great blues rock album. And that's kind of what I feel like this record is. You know, when I listen to this, it makes me wish I could have been a fly on the wall when these guys were playing clubs, you know, yeah. <laughs> during this time. In sort of the uh, you know mid late seventies, uh, maybe by this time they were playing much bigger places. But you know, on some of the album tracks like Century City, I wouldn't say they're quite on the level song wise as the singles. But you just get this feel like you can picture them playing live, and you just hear the fun they have playing this music. And I think the record, and got to give credit to Jimmy Iovine, is a perfect balance of that visceral kind of raw energy of a a band that's really locked in, but but with just the right amount of studio polish you know it kind of splits the difference so i think it's a great record it's i think it's an important one in the history of rock music because this is what really launched him i mean this sold like two million copies and a few of those singles at the top 10 top 15 so curious to see what your uh, take on it was i started listening to it doing these albums at the same time i was like all right the job is to really figure out what i like about it and i started imagining gaslight anthem performing these songs. 
Hmm. And I thought about how awesome I would think that they were. <laughs> and it just put me in a different place listening to it. Now, don't do me like that. We'll never recover for me. I, I don't, I've heard it too many times. It's just like- You don't like it. Yeah, it's destroyed. But, <laughs> but the other ones, and I, I've never like paid attention to this album. I actually think like the last song on the record, Louisiana Rain, is mm. amazing. So it was that and even the losers, which I I really liked. As well. And then Refugee and Here Comes My Girl, I appreciated in a different way. And I think the two things that stuck out to me in this album, listening to it, were A, as you mentioned, just sort of the impeccable songwriting, just every time without being obvious or cheap about it, every song is written almost perfectly, I would say. And then the other thing that I never paid attention to is how good the playing is and how good the the guitar specifically, uh, from the tone and just sort of the ease uh, and, and how like, uh, how it supports everything. I don't know. I, I like. I think this space that that they play with, the guitar does, and the tone and everything about it is so good. And the songwriting is so good, um, and the coolness is so good. Like for a a Heartland Rock album, which I guess for you know, for lack of a better description, this would be, but a very very small small amount of corniness and phoniness like as i mentioned i i think it all comes across as very authentic and very good and i had never i had never paid attention to how perfect the songs were and how good the playing was before before i like took his voice out of it and just listened to the songs yeah and i think it's interesting you mentioned like heartland rock i guess i always thought of him more in that tradition of almost southern california Sure, sure, sure. Singer, sure. songwriter, like kind of the birds and stuff. I don't know why I thought that. Maybe because I thought of him like sort of Jeff Lynn and mm-hmm. there's sort of, well, of course, Traveling Wilburys, you know. Yep. Uh, but. Got somebody to lean on. Put your body next to mine and dream on. Yeah, but actually, when you listen to this, there's kind of like more of the, I wouldn't say punk rock, but that swagger and that attitude behind it. Yeah. Even in his vocal delivery, it's not really, I actually wouldn't say it's that Southern California <laughs> sort of sunshiny folk rock thing. I don't know. I always sort of placed him in that, but I don't really think, now maybe he evolved into that at times over the years, but at this phase, I think it was more like sort of the post-punk kind of thing mm-hmm. that he was that they were doing. That seemed more of the attitude and the style of the music to me. And again, another connection to Gaslight Anthem. I think like I I think accidentally you said it when I sent you the albums. You said, "Oh, that's a a perfect combo." I I, I was just picking an album, and I right. purposely <laughs> picked this album because I was like, you know what, this one will be a challenge for me. Obviously, I know the singles; it'll be a challenge because I don't really love Tom Petty. Let's see if I can get into it. But listening to them both, they 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 do both share that the sort of uh, sit somewhere in between Heartland, regular rock, and and a, a punk aesthetic that you can't really nail them down to at any time, but you definitely feel both things at, at all times. Yeah, and it's it, it's there's such a deep connection there that that's ex- what you just said was the main takeaway from Gaslight Anthem, but you're right, I, it's kind of the same with Petty. And I guess when I think of some of his uh, like solo records, like the record he did with Rick Rubin, mm-hmm. he, he that was sort of in a different sonic place, I think, than these records. And, you know, he had, Mud Crutch was kind of a different thing. He had different, like, modes he went into musically, but because it was always him at the core, and because his voice is so unmistakable, that was always the thread. And I think, uh, 
yeah, I, I, I never thought of him as Heartland Rock, but I guess that's kind of what it is, or that's kind of really where he sits. I mean, I think that was his appeal, maybe from a commercial standpoint. Yeah, that's where it always sit for me. Which which album did did Rick Rubin produce? The Last DJ. Which one? I think did he did he Wildflowers. Produce? I we should double check that. Uh, but okay. uh, that, that would make sense, right? I think he did that one. Uh, did he? I don't know if he did anything else other than that. Uh, let me. We should just double check that so we don't put some wrong information out there. But you know, the Rick Rubin thing is interesting. I, I was. We talked about this in one of the other episodes because I've heard these things about how like he'll produce certain bands and. Not be doesn't there. do anything. Doesn't yeah. do anything. So I, I know he makes an impact because everyone wants to work with him, and you have these like great songwriters like uh, Petty who wanted to work with him. But 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 is it because? I mean, there's sort of a chicken and egg thing, right? <laughs> if great songwriters want to work with him, then the odds of him getting more great albums is probably higher. It's just, <laughs> it does seem difficult for me to understand why the producer who doesn't even show up a lot of the time is a great producer. And maybe maybe he just need maybe it's something he'll say and maybe he he picks out the most important things and is able to just, you know, change the course of somebody by by changing something one or two degrees to the left, you know? Like maybe that that's possible, but it, it is a funny a funny thing, you know. Yeah, and it and it is wildflowers that he produced. Okay. Yeah, I, we had that conversation and I kept thinking about that afterwards like how do you define what a producer does? Right. And, and, and I think I came to the conclusion that it can be many different things and it's kind of context. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think of like Butch Walker, your favorite artist, mm-hmm. here's a guy who plays instruments, writes songs, knows how to engineer. He's directly attached to the music, right? He, he, he becomes part, if he produces someone, he becomes part of the band. He puts the band together. He's a great guitar player. I imagine he plays all the other instruments too. He seems like one of those yeah, guys. Yeah, he does. And he's involved in the mixing, and I mean, he's so connected to the music. To me, that was always my definition of producer: someone who comes in musically and is directly attached to the music. But then I think there's this other side of producers that are the producer A and R, the guys who would work for the label, and they were A and R men, right? And they would they would then become producers as well. I think that's kind of two different things, right? I yeah, mean, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then that was what more what you're saying and maybe the realm that Rick Rubin operates in where it's you're like a broader concept guy and you stand you're behind the glass and you kind of try to absorb and amplify the best elements of what the band can do. But I got to thinking about that a lot after that. I think to me my definition of it is more the Butch Walker type, the the guy who's he becomes part of the band, you know? Not to compare what I do to a record producer, but now that I'm thinking about it, there are some hosts where I have to act like Butch Walker and <laughs> be in there and be like, having done, having been on the air and sort of understand it and get it, I'm certainly not to uh, talk radio like I like Butch Walker is to playing guitar. I would not compare those things. But there are some, there are some of them that need that and want that. But there are some where it's really just saying every once in a while, hey, that was the best thing, you should do that again. And planting a seed and walking away. And most times just leaving them alone and, and doing, doing what they do. And, uh, and I, I, I could imagine both being valuable depending on the time in a, mu- in a music standpoint, the time in their career, the artists themselves, what they need, what they want, how they respond to criticism. You know, all of those things probably just... You know, there, there are probably some artists that Rick Rubin would be great for and some some artists that Rick Rubin would be bad for. And the same with, with you know, somebody like Butch Walker who you can listen to the album and say, oh, Butch Walker definitely produced this. And you listen to a Rick Rubin album and there's no signature sound or anything, you know. It's really interesting what you said, uh, the parallel uh, between what you do in radio and what happens in a studio. I think it's getting to the heart of the same thing. Because you said some people you're... You're a little more hands off, and once in a while, you just spot, you just pick out that one thing that you think really connects, and others you got to really get in the trenches there and work with them. But yeah. in both cases, you're looking for what connects on the air, right? You're working for what works on the air. You're working for what you're looking for what's going to get a reaction and create that connection with the listeners. Yeah, it's the same thing I think in a studio. That's you're trying to unlock that magic. The one thing I'll say about being in the studio. 
For me, I love live performing. That's my favorite side of it. I don't enjoy being in the studio nearly as much. Hmm. It can be this sort of sterile environment. Yeah. There's a technical side of it. You stop for long periods of time sometimes so the engineer can clean stuff up. <laughs> I get sort of tired and a little bit distracted at times. I think sometimes maybe the right producer can also help focus your energy in. Yeah, or yeah, figure out how to maximize your energy and your focus in the studio. So there's that sort of intangible side of it. But that's an interesting parallel with, with what you do in radio. It, it is kind of the same thing. It's just trying to unlock what, what connects, what, what resonates with people. Well, to the point, there are some, there are some hosts that I never sit in their show meetings, ever. And really all it is is the occasional text message. And like I said, I'll see them all the time. But the, most of the communication about the show is a, a five or 10 minute conversation here or there that I'm trying to get across one particular thing, just trying to emphasize something that was good or de-emphasize something that was bad. And then that's it. And that's all they need. And it seems like I would imagine, now that I'm, I'm thinking this through live on the pod, I would imagine to an outsider, it would seem like I don't do anything for them at all. You know, like the same way I'm thinking about that about uh, about Rick Rubin, but hmm. there's some there's some hosts. I mean, like radio talk show hosts are artists in in a way. They're they're performing. They're, that's what they do. They perform. Their 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 hit song is a a great opinion or something. And I think there's some of them that just the more feedback they get, the worse that they are, and they think about it too much. And you really just have to let them sort of do their thing. You know. And I imagine the real challenge is for you to know how to approach it with each individual host. Right. Like to size up, okay, I need to get a little more involved with this to make this work. Yeah. Or to say, no, no, this 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 guy, he's pretty much got it covered. I just need to tap in from time to time to say, oh, that was, man, that's gangbusters right there. That works, you know? Yeah. Well, but to know that, where to do it, I imagine, is the hard part, right? To know where to, where to get engaged and where to lay off. Well, because you get this thing in your head, you're just like, man, if they would just listen to what I say, everything would be fine. But like, that's, you gotta realize, and again, to the same to the Rick Rubin thing, like, these guys are the best at what they do in the whole world. So, you know, why should they sit and just listen to what I have to say? They, like, that's, it doesn't make any sense. And I would imagine the same thing, you have Rick Rubin producing these huge artists, these just, you know, who have had tons of success without Rick Rubin. So, you know, they're, they're there for a certain thing and he does a certain thing. And I would imagine that th that is the thing, that that is the thing is just finding his spots and, and going in and giving them the space to sort of not showing up. Maybe they need to create someday without somebody looking over their shoulder. You know, they need right. to record without they, knowing that they're being judged by the, you know, one of the greatest producers of all time. Maybe they just need to feel good and, and say, fuck it and, you know. And so, yeah, so, it's, and he has to be careful. You can't just walk into the room with Tom Petty or Johnny Cash or someone and say, tell them what's what. Right, you right. You know, song, right? Like, you can't tell them what's what about the song. These guys are some of the greatest, you know, were some of the greatest songwriters. And pretty much everyone he's worked with more recently is in that realm. Yeah. So it, he probably has to tread very carefully with not crossing certain lines, but just, like you said, giving the right kind of feedback. Yeah. So, well, I give this a 10 moot lose upon revisit. It would have been a, honestly, before this, it would have been a stay free my goose, but it moves wow. to, yeah, it doesn't even move to a, um, a grip it, rip it, and moot loo. Yeah, it's <laughs> 10 moot loo. I give it 10 moot loo. I'm 10, 10 moot loo record. 10 moot loo's all the way for me as well. Yeah, great record, great record. Uh, so the next one, a, a connected a connected album from the Gaslight Anthem, the 59 Sound. A legendary record for the people who know it, for sure. This uh, was suggested by I Like This Pod on Apple Podcasts, so <laughs> thank you for suggesting it. This band sits dead in the center of the sounds like Springsteen, but better than Springsteen category that I have. And I couldn't Eight. stop thinking about that because you've mentioned it so many times. So I, 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 that was like pervading the pervading thing within my listening. <laughs> well, but, and, but it makes sense, though, when you listen. I mean, it makes perfect sense. Well, so... And this is the band that people get most mad about that I say that I like because they point to Springsteen 
as a direct influence. Like they vocalize how much they like Springsteen <laughs> and they played shows with Springsteen. I mean, like there oh, is- they? Oh, I yeah, didn't realize they, that. Yeah, wow. like there's a lot of Springsteen, not just in the sound, but they're just like, hey, we do this because of Springsteen. And I'm like, nah, you're, but you're better though. So <laughs> they're from New Jersey. I love how it always, there's always a moment where we get into- just the, the brief Springsteen moment. <laughs> yeah. They, they've, they are from Jersey. They've been around for about 15 years. They are the... Uh, now, they are on hiatus right now. They've been in hiatus since 2014, 2015. They, they never... They, a lot of bands do this now where they don't break up, but they're also not an active band. They're not making records. They're not touring. They did tour a few years ago to support the 10-year anniversary of this record, uh, the 59 Sound, which I, I regret having not going to, which is why I feel like I should go to that Limp Biscuit concert because I'm going to regret not going to it. But they've been the, the same four members since the beginning, Brian Fallon, Alex Rosamilia, Alex Levine, and Benny Horowitz. They, in addition to Springsteen, I would say that there are very clear notes of Petty which I noticed for the first time this time, there are very clear notes of Johnny Cash. There are very clear notes of Elvis. And there are very clear notes, I, I think, of John Mellencamp. Now, what's interesting is that none of these artists are punk, but I, I don't know that there is a better example of an album and a band that sit in the punk plus heartland rock aesthetic like the Gaslight Anthem do. Yeah, 100%. And it's it's almost hard to explain why. It, you just hear it and you know it. And you can imagine it when they're playing it, what the shows are like. Like you can imagine at a heartland rock show, everybody's not going nuts, packed in, singing every word. But at a Gaslight Anthem show, they are. And, and that's how you know they have both. It, there's nothing about the songs, to me, that are particularly punk rock, but it feels punk rock in a way that most Heartland rock artists do not. Do you feel that when you yeah. listen to it? That was really my biggest takeaway. You just, what you just got into there, I'm not sure I've ever heard a band, I think I've heard other bands do this, I'm not, but I'm not sure I've heard a band split the difference in such a mm -hmm. seamless way as these guys, because... I think you're right. The songs are more in the heartland, roots rock, Americana, whatever you want to call it. And here's a way to think about it. If you were to suddenly change the sonic space that these songs live in, like if it was something like an upright bass or mm -hmm. mandolin and things like that and straight up acoustic guitar, I think they would have this huge appeal to that sort of heartland rock, roots rock audience. But yep. because the way it's presented is that it's more in the attitude and the delivery that it's punk rock. And that's what makes it so enjoyable is that the songs have this one underpinning, but the delivery system is something totally different. Uh, like you're right, that's nothing like Springsteen or John Cougar Mellencamp or any of them. And I think you can, there is a excellent, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, when everybody's talking about something, oral history written on the ringer about this album written by Robert Mays, which is really, really good. And one of, the, one of the things they talk about was their decision to put this album out on Side One Dummy, which is sort of a, a legendary indie label. They're a well-known indie label, definitely associated more with punk rock and things like that. And they could have gone to a major, but they felt like the way they wanted it to pr be promoted and feel would work better on side one dummy, which is why they went there. And it, it does show again, like this conscious being both, you know, that, and it almost reminds me of Eddie and the cruisers a little bit in that. I, I think there's, I mean, a fictional band obviously, but there's something punk rock about that too. I'm not and familiar also, with that. What, what is Eddie and the cruisers? The movie? I've never seen it. Are you serious? I'm serious. Oh my God! You sound I, I, as flabbergasted by that as when you told me you didn't see, you've never watched The Godfather. Oh yeah, right? I mean, <laughs> no, oh. I'm not even, I've never even heard of that. Really? Yeah, I don't know what that is. This is like <laughs> stunning to me. You, do you know the song "On the Dark Side"? No. On the dark side. Oh yeah. 
on the dark side. I don't know that one. Are you serious? Draw a total blank on this one. I, I'm just fucking stunned. Please, if you have some time over I the will. next two days. It, it came out in the early 80s. It's about like a, a rock band called Eddie and the Cruisers, and it has <laughs> an, an outstanding soundtrack. And I'm just fucking I know. stunned. I've never even you, heard of that. I've never even, I don't even know what that is. Like, we're the same age. They've like, this I know. How did I, I don't know how I missed it, especially because... I'm I'm not a, a huge fan of like music related movies, but I feel like I've watched a lot of them. So yeah, but uh, you would know about this at least. Like I, first, yeah. I want you, I want you to listen to On the Dark Side, which sounds like a I, I wouldn't be surprised if Gaslight Anthem covered it at some point. And then you got to watch. You just got to see the movie. Now, is there a record content. that came from the <laughs> album, or is it just the song? No, no, no. There's a soundtrack. There's to a soundtrack. It. Yeah. Eddie yeah, and the yeah. Cruisers. Yeah. Eddie and the Cruisers. I'm just fucking blown away <laughs> that you've never seen that before. Okay. This is like, what was the other thing that you had never heard that I was stunned? I can't even remember what it was. But I can't believe you've never seen it. Okay. So, again, they're on hiatus, and Brian Fallon has done a couple of solo records. They're both great. One of them produced by Butch Walker. Falling under you. I've been here before. Watching the wheels go round But everybody that I've ever known They just ache all night And they wake up alone Yeah, we wait in the dark And I actually think inspired Butch Walker There's a, a Butch Walker record called State Gold a Heartland garage rock record, which he made right after producing the Brian Fallon record. And I think I think he had a an effect on it. So as I mentioned, there there is a, a great oral history on the ringer, and there are a couple of great quotes in there. The first one from the drummer, Benny Horowitz. He said, every band has one really special time. And if they're lucky, they make a lot of music in that time. You can never get back your youth. You can never get back the fuck you of your 20s. And I think, I think you can re- rediscover yourself and become something different, and that's cool, but we can never do that again. It's impossible. Um, and I think that was a great quote, because they did make great records afterwards. The, um, I think there are two specific that I really like, but, but none ha- capture this. And then a quote from Springsteen about the album. <laughs> It had all the markings of a classic. Every song was great. There weren't any weak spots on the record. It was fresh and rich and newly discovered. A lot of spirit and a lot of soul. Those things have a tendency to last. The record is as fresh as it ever was. Um, I was hoping you were going to read that kind of like sarcastically. No, it's a good quote, so I'm just going to leave it in. Fallon, as compared to Petty, I love Brian Fallon's voice. I, I think it is has the the, perso- the perfect combination of sort of emotion and and that fuck you that Benny Horowitz talks about. And I think he's he captures everything I like about this kind of singing. And I think he's got it's distinctive his voice. And I think he uses just enough force when he needs it and lays back just enough when he does. And I also think he's a great lyric writer. The the album starts off with a song called Great Expectations. Which is a a cool, a great song, but also great great lyrics. Um, I saw taillights last night in a dream about my first wife. Everybody leaves and I'd expect as much from you. I saw a taillight last night in a dream about my old life. Everybody leaves, so why wouldn't you? It's like, it's a great lyric, man. He's, it's he, like a, Does he write all the lyrics? To, to yeah, 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 yeah. There's a real poetry to the way he writes. Like, I, I imagine him writing these lyrics separately almost from the music. I'm always curious about that. Because for me, and I know for a lot of songs, it starts with the melody and you kind of build the lyric from there. 
Yeah. But these lyrics sound to me like they, they could exist on their own. Yes, I separately, agree. and uh, that's was the biggest hook of this. Would I really, I really liked it, but yeah, the, the lyrics are phenomenal. The uh, the fifty nine sound is just is. I, I was talking about everyone singing along in a club at a show. That the title track I think has that for sure. And then the other two that I love, Miles it's Davis and the Cool. I think is an amazing song. And then Here's Looking at You Kid is, <laughs> is one of my favorite songs of all time. Ends up on mix after mix after mix that I do. And it's just a fantastic song and captures, <sighs> captures cash, I think, a little bit in this. You know, captures whatever, whatever country slash heartland roots. You could imagine all of, you can imagine Elvis doing that song. You can imagine John Cougar Mellencamp doing that song. You can tell Jane if she writes That I'm drunk off all these stars And all these crazy Hollywood nights And that's total to see It's just got a lot, of, a lot of cool to it, you know? Yeah, and I think that was my favorite song on the record. I, 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 love, I really love the whole record. But I liked where he went, where he was singing vocally. He was kind of in a different part of his voice on that song. Yeah, a like little a bit in this, like, yeah, more in that lower register baritone. It almost made me wish there were like a few more moments like that, than yeah, ju- than just there. That I'd like to hear him do a record more in that space because that part of his voice is just really appealing. Yeah, the yeah, I think he touches on it in the two solo records, especially American Honey, the second one. I think American Honey Honey only has seven or eight songs on it, but it's a a quieter sort of a more emotional and I think his voice hits that too. I, this is just such a such a like a a legendary record and I, I put it in the same spot. It does feel very against me in the mix of Heartland and Punk, but against me definitely leans more punk. And I think the the way that, you know, the against me record that we did, New Wave sits right in the the perfect moment for the band. For me, the Gaslight Anthem, this album fits in in their moment. It's a a real moment, this album. Yeah, and and that was one of my favorite records that you brought in, the Against Me album. And in both cases, I just Oh, wait, we didn't do New Wave, right? We did White Crosses. We did White White Crosses, but in both instances, both this record and that one, the lyric writing is at such a high level that when you just separate it with both albums... And you mm-hmm. just look at the words on the page; it's it's it really holds up just that way. Just to read what's there, you know. It's like when, I like lyrics that sometimes it's about something simple, a simple sentiment. You don't need that, but uh, lyricists who can kind of they're writing a poem as well as writing a song, and the lyrics yeah. can kind of you can in, detach them from the music, and there's still something really heavy there. Yeah, for sure. And I think that lyrics like that. If you're not careful, if the if the writer is disingenuous, I think you can tell because the lyrics like that, when I read them, but like when we read them, I almost need to stop doing it. But when you read the lyrics, I feel like a cornball reading the lyrics. But he does not seem like that, and I think the the sign of a great artist is being able to sing those words but feel honest about it, and you don't feel like it's a put on, and I don't feel like it's a put on with them at all. That's a great perspective, and it got me thinking about something. Same thing that Laura Jean Grace does, that, you know, she'll she'll write a commentary, but there's always something personal infused into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really feel like Brian Fallon does that, too. Like a song like Old White Lincoln, there's all, a lot of the lines, that they, they put create an image. There's like a visual storytelling there. Yeah. But in a lot of moments, he'll pivot at some point in the song into something that's almost either personal or more of like a philosophical perspective like on Old White Lincoln. Yeah. 
the one set of lines where he says, I lit a cigarette on a parking meter. The corner boys told her I was dying to meet her. Her like a prayer I said on dead man's knee. You drove up like a parade. Like it's something that that suddenly it's this first person narrative, you know, yeah. and you, you get that there's something there. And actually there was another line that I think does, does that even more in film noir, which is another one of my favorite tunes. Again, that's a very visual song. At, at moments, I'm not always absorbing the overall arching message of it, but it's just the lines are so compelling. It's like the showing, not telling. But well, there's another verse where he gets into it, and he says, but nobody's never going to tell you the way. you got to figure it out, boys, and suffer the rain. And the fools in the night and the heat of the day when all you ever really wanted was for someone to understand. Suddenly, it's it's something that is more personal and relatable, and he weaves that into the to the more sort of visual storytelling that he does. That's what makes it connect to me, I think. Yeah, the storytelling is is great. It, it is almost like when we talked about Exile in Guyville with Liz Fair. Now, in fairness, you know, listening to it, you don't know the stories aren't about her, but you imagine there are parts of her in the stories. And I think Brian Fallon is the same way. He seems like he's telling a story about someone else who is based on him. Right. If, if that makes any sense. Well, that's what know. Bruce Springsteen does, too. <laughs> uh, Just to, th- those aren't really based on him. He's lying. He's but, lying. Uh, but, but it's the thing <laughs> but of... Yes. Uh, there's a there's a an element... Well, the of, album we did. we uh, The album we did was, was basically like all like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah where sure. he, he assumes the role of a character. Yes. But the, but the way to make that really effective is not just purely to be that character, but you get that there's something personal in there. Yes. You know, that's that's not an easy thing to do as a lyricist to sort of create a concept. And there is a concept here. There's like a movie concept. You know, yeah. you and Carol Girls Get the Blues. Here's looking at you, kid, film. Well, there's, a, there's a cinematic concept. Mm-hmm. And to stay in that, create these characters. But then as you're listening, you know, oh, no, I'm getting something personal of what this what this singer is, is communicating. There is something personal there. What was the other record that we did that was like this? Uh uh, I'm I'm trying to remember. It was a local guy. I'm I'm forgetting the name now. Oh 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 oh, oh. the the a singer from the Wonder Years. Yes um, yes yes uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> what's the project called? Hold and, on. And I really love that record. Uh, it was wait, early wait, wait. on. It was early on. Yeah yeah yeah. Because we were gonna have him on, and then we didn't have him on. Uh, Dan Campbell is yes. the artist. Aaron West in the Roaring Twenties. Yes. I mean that that yeah. whole record is like that. He's. In theory, he's a character, but I feel like when you listen to that album... It's him. It's yeah. him. You're, you're getting yeah. a lot of him uh, there. I think it's actually a great device mm-hmm. as, as a writer to... Because it frees you up. You don't have to... When it's something that the listener knows is directly personal just from you, there is a vulnerability that's almost scarier there. If you can take on a persona and bring in some of your personal sort of perspective that way it's kind of easier in a way but yet but it's a it's a slippery slope to do it right there is a writer who does that a lot chuck palanek who wrote most famous for writing fight club but has a, a lot of other amazing some of them pretty disgusting but some of them ama- like amazing great books definitely you can feel him working himself out in his books i think you know like I, the the characters are not him but he is working things out in his books, I think, in a lot of ways. And I, I think it, uh, that's what a, a great artist does, you know, can yeah. take their feelings and, 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 and do that. I'm still just fucking blown away you haven't seen Eddie and the Cruisers. I, <laughs> I just, will definitely, I'll definitely Not only that you haven't it. seen it, that you have no awareness of it. It's I just stunning no, to me. I have no awareness. It's unbelievable. I feel like... And again, I I feel like I should have somehow come across it, but the song I, I just I don't know how you don't know on the dark side. I just I'm just fucking you're a musician. I'm well, what was the blown. song that was played everywhere a million times a day that you said you never heard? Oh, uh, Old Town Road. So how did that happen? I mean, sometimes something cosmically in the universe it yeah. just misses misses you somehow. Yeah. So this wow. one missed me. <laughs> yeah, Eddie and the amazing. Cruisers. Eddie and the Cruisers on the dark side, on, and and the soundtrack the- is. Like, is it like a, a band's record, basically? Yeah, 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 yeah. Eddie yeah. and the Cruisers. Okay, I will definitely watch it. <laughs> Stunning. Stunning. <laughs> um, okay, so 
Well, uh, obviously, Ten Mutlu for me feels like a Ten Mutlu for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Ten Mutlu's all the way. All right. Leave us, a, uh, leave us a review to suggest an album. Do it at Apple Podcasts. Or if you don't use Apple, that's fine. Go to carlandryrecordclub.com where we have a submit your album link, but also a link of every album we've reviewed and a link to the Spotify to listen to the album and then the podcast as well. We'll talk to you next time. That's all we got. Stay free, my goose. Stay free, my goose.